Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, statement's coming at ya, statement's coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, sign up to our RSS feed either on iTunes or on the radio page of our site, or which is creatingafamily.org slash radio show, or any of the podcasts. Anyway, you're accessing this podcast now, you can subscribe right with wherever it is you're looking, whatever directory you're using. Today's show will be on coping with infertility grief after adopting. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. If you're struggling with infertility, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For comprehensive resources, including infertility information, treatment options, and ways to save money, check out the, it's not so much all new anymore, but check out the fertility website, I mean the Faring Fertility website, which is faringfertility.com. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest developments that's happening in the worlds of infertility or adoption, and we also provide you with the upcoming week's show topic and blog topic. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org. It's on the left-hand side of creatingafamily.org. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. You might enjoy my blog yesterday, which is on the messiness of open adoption. So often in our attempts to promote open adoption, I think that we uh, in the professional community sometimes overlook uh, and the messiness. And it is a complicated, a potentially a complicated and, and uh, situation. And we don't often have a roadmap for following it. So we talk about uh, a specific situation that has come up with one of our uh, audience and we give suggestions, or I give suggestions, on how to handle it. And we would absolutely love to have your input there at all, uh, as well. Uh, go to the blog at creatingafamily.org slash blog and join the discussion in the comments section. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Nightlight Christian Adoptions with offices in California, Colorado, and South Carolina, and adoption programs throughout the world, as well as Domestic Infant and their uh, Snowflakes Embryo Donation Embryo Adoption Program. We also have Children's Connection with offices throughout, an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation, adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. As you just heard, Creating a Family is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors as well. So if you're looking for an adoption agency or an adoption attorney or a therapist 
or a, a, a donor agency or uh, an infertility clinic, please make your first stop to Creating a Family Databases, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, <coughs> excuse me, services provided, years in operation, humanitarian ages, to a host of criteria that we think are important when choosing. And when you support those who support us, you, we thank you. On today's Creating a Family show, we will be talking about coping with infertility grief after you adopt. Our guest is Carol Lieber-Wilkins. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in the field of reproductive medicine, adoption, and family building options since 1986. She is known for helping patients transition to non-genetic forms of family building, such as donor conception or adoption. She created her family through adoption and egg donation, so she brings with her a wealth of both personal and professional experience to her work. Welcome, Carol Lieber-Wilkins, to Creating a Family. Well, thank you, Don. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, common wisdom is that we are supposed to resolve infertility grief before moving to adoption. What do we mean when we use the word resolve, resolving grief? Well, what I mean when I use that term is that um, an individual or a couple is educated and informed about the ways in which adoption and adoptive families are different from families that are formed the easy and cheap way. um, (laughs) Emphasis being on the cheap word. Oh, yeah. I'll say inexpensive, the easy and Mm -hmm. inexpensive way, because we are different families in many ways, and we're exactly the same in many ways. Uh, And so it means a lot of education. It means becoming an expert in something that we never thought we'd be an expert in. And it also means acknowledging and understanding ways in which um, reproductive loss and infertility is akin to a death in the family. And that for most people, not all, but most people, when we're unable to have a genetic offspring, it feels like there's been a death in the family. And the process, I hate to start out a show with such a dark and, and uh, <laughs> kind of, you know, morbid but It is subject. the reality, though. Yeah. No, but, uh-huh. um, you know, resolution really means saying goodbye to the child that we originally tried to have and thought we were going to have in order to make room for and embrace the children that we eventually will have. But it's not a finite process. It's not something where you say, okay, we're resolved, and now we can adopt. So it, throughout our lifetime, actually, and the lifetime of our family, we will be at different levels of resolution, just like grief is a process, and we go through stages, and we go backward and forward and backward and forward again. And so at different times in our lives, in the lives of our children, we will um, revisit that resolution, as it were. Uh, But it primarily means being educated and understanding that that loss that we've experienced for most people has great significance for the family we'll eventually create. And in what ways does the loss of infertility affect the, the, the family that you will create? Well, from the time a child enters our lives, there are 
adoption issues, we'll call them. They're not necessarily problems, but they can be challenges that we address all the way from talking with our children about adoption, explaining to others about adoption, um, ways in which um, our feelings get triggered if something occurs with our children that perhaps we didn't expect. And so these conversations and the presence of our children always having come from a first family um, are in our family forever. And the family next door to us, who was formed the easy and inexpensive way, don't have that. They have other things, but we have those other things and we have the adoption stuff. So we're different in the sense that our family has essentially more people in it, even if those people are not actively in our families. And that makes our conversations different. It makes the issues that we address different. There are certain expectable psychological issues from the perspective of parents as well as adoptees that are very common that biological families don't have. Okay. Let me, uh, we've got a question from Leslie, so I'm going to read that. And I think it will open up um, the, the, the next avenue for discussion. Leslie writes, I was so glad to see the topic of today's show. We are trying to decide whether to do egg donation with donor sperm, another round of egg donation with my husband's sperm, but add a new type of ICSI, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, um, or move to adoption. On some level, I am so ready to adopt and get away from all the uncertainty and heartache of infertility treatment, but I wonder if I'll look back and regret stopping without trying everything I possibly can try. Do people often have regrets from having quit too soon? Maybe next time will be the lucky time. Um, okay, so let's talk about Leslie's question in in, in relation to uh, trying to decide whether or not she's ready to to quit treatment. Well, that that's a really loaded question, and obviously, you know, without being able to chat with them, it's hard to know how they feel about letting go of pregnancy. Obviously, um, each of those options are going to provide them a different opportunity. Adoption is the one that, of course, will provide them with parenthood, but no genetic connection and no pregnancy. So part of that decision-making is trying to weigh the relative importance of each of the things that those options bring to them, both of them, uh, and how important is it, for example, for Leslie to be pregnant? Uh, How important is it to her husband to try for a genetic offspring? It sounds like regardless, her genetic offspring is no longer an option. And well, so, yeah, yeah, it does sound that way. Yes, you're right. Yeah, but for him, there may be this this last opportunity, um, and so it you know it takes a lot of soul searching to say, okay, how important is it to us? Sometimes people will say, I just honestly really don't care anymore, and I'm just really ready to be a parent. But for some, there is this lingering doubt that. They have one more cycle in them, and usually if they're asking the question, it means they need to try. The question is, which one are they going to try? 
Um, most people, I, I have to say in my 28, 29-year experience of doing this, I will say it's very rare for parents to have regret about the family they ended up creating, no matter how they created it. That we have this amazing ability to believe that the children that we parent are the ones that we were always supposed to parent. And so, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, it is a beautiful thing. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I think they have to soul search and decide, you know, how important is it to her to be pregnant and not to judge that. And if it's really important to him to try one more cycle to have a genetic offspring, then sometimes that's what they have to do. I call them throwaway cycles. Very often you'll have someone who, you know, they've done three IVFs and they know the next one isn't going to work and their eggs are terrible, but they just feel like they they have to try one more because something happened with the first three that made it seem like that's why it didn't work. And so, those, you know, to me those are closure cycles. They're like, okay, I don't think it's going to work. We're going to throw the money at it. We're going to give it a chance but we we have to try this one last time. And then they're really ready to move on. They feel like they gave it their best chance. The other thing is this expression that I think we've all heard, but it is so, so true, and that is just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. And there there is this aspect of um, people in infertility treatment, frankly, I've never related to it, but it's this thing of I feel like I have to try everything I can before quote unquote give it, uh, quitting. Right. And I just don't agree with that. I mean, I, I think you have to do whatever it is that you have to do, but there are always going to be more cycles. There are always going to be more treatments. There's always going to be more medication and more technology in the embryology lab that is being offered to you. There always will be. Um, and you can't elect. And the well, it's funny because when I am with groups of uh, infertility doctors, reproductive endocrinologists, they will often say that they are at that they're that they're in the position of, of of having to discourage people from continuing treatment because they think that they, with some people they just can't. They don't know when it's time just to say, okay, it's not going to work. On the other hand, when, when uh, if you talk with the uh, people in our in our audience and in our uh, online community, uh, we hear a different story. They that the uh, reproductive endocrinologists are always offering the next step up the ladder, uh, and, mm-hmm. and not just offering it, but the expectation is that okay, well this didn't work, so now we'll tinker. We'll just okay, we'll we'll put you on the um, we'll take you off of this protocol, put you on a slightly different protocol. And we'll do it again, and we'll do it again. So you can't rely on other people necessarily, the professionals, um, to make the decision for you of, of of when it's going to quit. And and so some people just get into the the, the medical treadmill, and it, there's not there's not like a quick avenue off. And the rule of thumb is to stop when before all of your resources are depleted, and when I say resources, I include 
emotional resources, psychological resources, the marital relationship resources, the, certainly the financial resources, because the process of adopting and becoming a new family by adoption is really hard. It's really, really hard. It's hard to become a new family, period, whether you give birth sure. or mm-hmm. a child comes to you by adoption, but the whole process of the home study and the matching and the selection and then adapting to parenthood without having a pregnancy is very challenging. It's exhausting. It can be exhausting. And you want to have something left by the time you get there, and you want to have time to kind of recover from the process of infertility and lick your wounds and get really ready and excited and enthusiastic. So, you know, if you if you buy into that one last whatever is going to help, you just want to make sure that you've got internal resources left to help you get through the next process of becoming parents. And I I, my experience with physicians, it's similar to yours, but I will say that what has really struck me is that doctors really want happy patients. They really want to please, like at their core, they're sort of people pleasers, and they really want to please their patients. And, of course, they want referrals and financial success and all of mm-hmm. that, but they really want their patients to be happy, and if they perceive that their patients are miserable and sad and just, you know, really want one more try, they're going to offer them that because it's always available. Well, and I, I mean, and as I said, when I speak with, um, and I do speak with a lot of um, REs, and they say quite that 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 they they are more opt to, uh, to realize when somebody needs to move on than the many patients are, and that they're in the position of, of saying to patients, you know, you really need to think about a different choice here. It's just, and it could be that both sides are, and there's some truth to both sides, that uh, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. how you're perceiving it. Mm-hmm. So, and what would and also I would, I would add that, um, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, but I would say that is really the time when we wish physicians would make referrals to mental health professionals. Oh, amen on that they, one. They, they very frequently do not um, to, to help the patients transition to the next stage and to accept what the doctor is saying because it's just hard to do without that support. Some clinics do an exceptionally good job of, uh-huh. of incorporating men, mental health professionals and some do not. Um, uh, creating a family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social network, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can find me at Dawn Davenport one or you can find uh, Creating a Family at All Run Together, Creating a Family. On Facebook, there are three ways you can connect with us. One, it's with me personally, which is Dawn.Davenport1. You can like our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash family. Or you can join the Creating a Family Facebook support group where we do all sorts of of sharing and discussing it as a closed group. However, uh, all you need to do is click on the Join button and we will let you in. Uh, You can find the Facebook support group by just typing in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box. And actually both the page and the group will uh, will pop up. 
So we were talking about how people can know when they are ready to uh, leave the fertility treatment world and move to adoption. And some of the things you've suggested are, are soul-searching as to, uh, without judgment, and I, I wanted to, to, to reiterate because I do think that that's an important part, but soul-searching without judgment, how important um, pregnancy is and, and, and breastfeeding, although it is possible to breastfeed in adoption, it is not easy and many people are never able to supply all their child's nutritional needs. So, um, so how important to you is pregnancy and breastfeeding? How important is a, 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 a biological connection to either you or your husband? Any other things that people should do um, to, to to help them discern whether or not they're ready to, to move to adoption? There is an exercise that I walk my clients through that we can talk about. I do recommend that people, they can try this certainly on their own, but it's it's really helpful to do it with the assistance of a mental health professional. And that is, again, returning to this concept of a death in the family. And the, the, the hardest thing about reproductive loss is that we're trying to say goodbye to someone that we never got to say hello to. Mm-hmm. And so we don't receive the kind of social support or even internal support that we do when an actual person has passed away but the way we feel inside is that our child has died. Mm-hmm. But then we've got intellectually we're thinking, but I didn't really have a child, and it's not as terrible. And, of course, when someone really passes away, friends and neighbors and coworkers and everybody says, I'm so sorry for your loss, and we have ritual around it, and we have a funeral, and we, uh, you know, we have wakes mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. church service. And when we experience the loss of a genetic offspring, it's the loss of a fantasy person, but that person has become very, very real to us over time. And so an exercise that I've been helping people with for decades is to try to bring that child to life in some way in order to then say goodbye to him or her. It's very sad it's very morbid. Everyone always cries when I talk about it. They cry when they do it, uh, which is the point, because when we've had a loss, it's appropriate to feel sad. Um, and most people do that by writing a letter to the child they're not going to have or the child they thought they had, which is the same thing. And the letter is really a hello and a goodbye letter. It's a letter that says, this is who I thought you'd be and you'd have this characteristic from my grandmother and this from your dad and this from whoever and this from me and we would do this and that. And what I've found over the years is that given the opportunity to talk about this, patients have a very specific age in mind of a child, like many people Um, picture a three-year-old. Men typically picture an older child, five or six years old, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, maybe playing baseball or building something. And 
And so the letter is sort of bringing this child to life and talking to the child and saying hello and sort of bringing them to life. Sometimes people name that child, realizing they're not going to use that name for a child they eventually parent. And then to say goodbye and to explain to this child in the letter why they have to let them go. Because the fantasy child, the imagined child, is taking up too much room and too much space in their heart and their home to allow for the children that we may eventually parent. Mm -hmm. And then to do something with that letter that is similar to a funeral. It's uh, a bearing, it's physical, it's getting rid of the letter. Some people go to the beach and they'll read the letter to the fish and rip it up and throw it in the water. Some people will climb to their favorite mountaintop and they'll bury it under their favorite shade tree. Many people who own their own home will plant a tree or a bush in their garden and they will bury the letter along with that plant so they watch the plant grow, knowing that that goodbye letter, in, in a sense the ashes of the person or whatever, are are in the ground um, some people burn it in a fireplace, but it wants to be physical and it wants to be something. You do not want to put this letter in your attic in a shoebox. You want to get rid of it because that's what we do when someone leaves us. And sometimes, most of the time, there is a real purging. There's a real finishing, having done this, because mm-hmm. most people don't realize how much they're carrying that person with them you know, how real they really were. And once they realize it, it's like giving a name to something they've been feeling and feeling crazy for it. Um, And so after doing that, sometimes people really feel like they have cleared a path to make a real decision about whether they're ready to move on to adoption and certainly donor conception. Uh, but I have people do this before donor conception as well. So it's, you know, it's for really any reproductive loss, genetic, gestational, all of the above. Um, and so this is something that people can do to see, okay, I did this. How do I feel now? It's not a panacea. It's not going to fix everything. It doesn't mean that you'll never think about your infertility again for sure. Uh, but it certainly is something that helps many people get to the next step. Yeah, I can see how it absolutely would, um, because you're saying goodbye to something, to to not something, something, someone, to make room for the next something, someone that uh, may come in. Um, and 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 if and if you find that it doesn't make room, then it means that 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 you shouldn't. There isn't room, I, I suppose. Here's a question we have from somebody who asked not to use their name. She said, please tell me, please tell me we have to be, people tell me, I'm sorry, people tell me we have to be certain before we adopt. I am not certain. I think it is the right decision, but I know that I will always grieve a child that looks like us and comes from our genes. I know I will always miss pregnancy. I know I'll wish there wasn't another family in my child's life. I can't imagine other people don't have these doubts, but maybe not. Does this mean we shouldn't move forward? In in essence, I think what she is asking is, how much uncertainty is too much uncertainty to move forward? Mm -hmm. 
Wow, I wish I could give a number to it on a scale of 1 to 10. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> oh, darn, um, can't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I can, but <laughs> I don't know how helpful it would be. You know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I do wonder if if she's had some help with this. You know, I just think sometimes saying these out, out loud to a person who is knowledgeable and experienced in the world of infertility could help her decide that a little bit better and to really decide if she will indeed always feel that way and also to what degree. I mean, I think we do always feel that way in different moments throughout our family's life. And that's that resolution piece we talked about at the beginning. Um, you know, days, weeks, months may go by, and we're just living our lives and taking our kids to preschool and getting them to do homework and grammar school and setting good limits and loving and hugging. And, you know, it, it's really not a, very much a part of our lives. But interspersed in all of that um, are... They're not reminders so much. They're just acknowledgments that we formed our family through adoption. And so it may be that her fear that she will always miss, uh, you know, maybe that is true, but the degree to which she'll be reminded of it may not be as extreme as she's feeling right now. It's very hard to tell. And she may have an unrealistic expectation, do, uh, because um, it is a process, and and our feelings change over time. So, what what do you think of as the, for lack of better word, warning signs for families or for adoption pres- professionals to recognize in families that the person or the couple is not ready to move to adoption? Uh, well, I I think the the way that particular. Um, Listener phrase the question probably means she's not ready right now. I don't know that it means she won't be. It means she needs some help getting to the next step. Um, I think family, extended family support is a very uh, big thing to consider uh, in terms of how adoption is viewed in our extended families and educating them as to what adoption means uh, I think, you know, if one's parents have very negative and derogatory things to say, like, oh, it, you're just getting somebody else's problems, you're just getting somebody else's kid, it'll never be your... I mean, you know, these things that one hears in some circles uh, means that everybody's still needing a bit of education, and it's very hard for an individual or a couple who's already been through hell and back in trying to conceive to push through that without the support of people they love. So that's another piece. And that just means that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It means they again that they just need some help educating the people around them so that they can feel more supported. Certainly the fact that a couple needs to be on the same page. Um, you know, and be somewhat enthusiastic and well-educated about adoption and, and believe that this is a good path for them to build their family. Um, and certainly if someone is in a chronic state of depression, 
you know, grief and depression are actually not the same thing. Uh, and so if someone really has a depression and they're crying all the time, they're completely uh, apathetic, they're unable to work and have good relationships, you know, all these signs of depression, that certainly needs to be treated before one can move forward because that's no state in which to make a decision anyway. Um, yeah, certainly not a good state with which to start parenting. Right. If you have the choice, which right, and and there is don't. a belief I think that once I get the kid, I won't be depressed anymore, and that is mm-hmm. not not true. It's just not true. So I think you know they need treatment for the depression, and again to resolve many of those feelings before they can feel excited and enthusiastic. So the the question about how sure is sure, mm-hmm. you know, eight on a scale of ten, <laughs> seven. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's it's a very unknown. And that's another piece is that, you know, our fantasy kid, our genetic offspring, we have a fantasy that we know them already. They're going to be just like us in all mm-hmm. the great ways. They won't have our lousy characteristics. They're going to look a little like us. They're going to carry our ethnicity, you know. Um, and... Uh, and so it, it's sort of appropriate to be afraid of the unknown. It's the like the devil we know versus the devil we don't. And mm-hmm. that's really scary. It is. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, you know, when people say, should I, um, um, I've blogged on this and we have gotten this question many times, should I not move forward if I'm not afraid? And I say, well, my gosh. I mean, the truth is you should be afraid anytime you're taking this type of, uh, this major change in your life. Uh, regardless of how you become a parent, it is a huge change. We don't tend to talk about the fear associated with uh, becoming a parent through pregnancy because that's not something that that uh, I think uh, many pregnant, I think very many pregnant couples feel it, but not that many want to talk about it because it's not really socially acceptable. Oh, they definitely are. I mean, I'm working yeah. with a couple of a couple of patients right now who are pregnant for the first time through assisted reproduction, and they're terrified. What is this going to mean? We're older. We've been, you know, living our life for so long. We can do what we want. Uh, what it, you know, they're afraid of the birth process. Is it going to go okay? Is baby going to be healthy? It's terrifying. Yeah, and and we don't tend to. We don't tend to think of that when you're, and, and so we we put the fear of adoption and, and adoption at least with uh, birth. There are more people that you know within your direct circle who have experienced that. Albeit your point was well taken, though, True. that families who are older sometimes separate their experience from the others in their circle. So I hadn't really thought about that. So in some ways, you know, that makes them feel different. But certainly with adopting, not everybody has somebody in their uh, family or, or tight friend circle that has adopted. So it feels more aliens and more fri- and, and more different as a result or more fearful as a result. Which is why groups are so helpful, particularly, you know, to be with people that are always a little bit ahead of you in the process. Absolutely. So that you have sort of a mentor or a guide. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can you can post and say I'm, you know I'm I'm feeling really terrified right now, and somebody can say, Oh yeah, I was too. I'm so glad I'm past that now. I'm so glad yeah. that I'm into the uh, sleep yeah. exhaustion stage as opposed yeah. to the yeah. waiting stage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then you can realize that that person right. Yeah. 
You are listening to Creating a Family. If you have enjoyed, if you are enjoying this show and want to help us grow, please do us a favor and rate this podcast on iTunes. If you have iTunes on your computer or phone, just type in the words Creating a Family and then rate it. And if you've got a couple extra minutes, we would really appreciate if you would leave us a comment as well. I would really appreciate this effort. It doesn't take much time, and uh, it really is a very it is very helpful for us as a podcast. We continue to remain the number one podcast in this area, and we would like to, and that helps more people find us. All right, with the I, I, what I want to do is talk a little bit now. Um, something that we are seeing a lot of right now, uh, and and I'm, I'm wondering if you are seeing it as well, with new treatments coming online all the time and, and with improved success rates uh, and different options becoming available, we hear more and more people wrestling with going back into infertility treatment after having adopted. Um, is this something that you're seeing as well? Um, not as much. No, I I mean, yes, I do see it some, but I'm not I'm not seeing it with a lot of regularity. What huh. I find more often is um people who have become a family by adoption are so relieved to be done and to be out of the hell of mm-hmm. spending money yeah. on treatments that don't work and um messing with their bodies and feeling badly and putting on weight that they often say, maybe usually say, if I had known I would feel this way, I would have done it a long time ago. You know, and that, and that is certainly in the past. I mean, and we we, we certainly hear quite a bit of that, too, um, in the support group as well as, as people contacting us. But I... I uh, and I'm, now I'm curious to know really how, but I, it, it is a very common thing that we are seeing. Here's actually a uh, an email, um, I think it was a Facebook message we got from Sarah. She says, I am completely torn up with this decision. We have a wonderful child through infant open adoption. She is the greatest thing that has ever happened to us, but I really want to be pregnant, and my husband would really like to have a bio child. We have gone back to infant to our infertility clinic, and in the last five years, they have had a greater success rate and new options, especially with donor egg. My question is this. Would it be better for our daughter if we adopted another child? Is it going to be hard for her that her sibling was born to us and she wasn't? Thoughts? Well, you know, if we had some way to predict how experiences would affect human beings, (laughs) Parenting would be a whole lot easier. Boy, isn't that the case? You know, children, two children in the same family, raised at the same time, you know, with the same genetics, experience that family in very different ways. So it's so hard to know how their child is going to experience that. There are some people who are easygoing and things roll right off their back and they just seem to have an understanding that mom really wanted to be pregnant and so they went back for that, but it doesn't mean they don't love me and they didn't want me. And there may be other adoptees who feel like, was I not enough? Was I not good enough for them? And was I a placeholder until Mm -hmm. they got their real kid? And there's just no way to know that. 
because, you know, they again, they may have a child who really struggles in life and they may have a kid who says, hey, I'm good, you know, thanks, I've had a great life. So I will say that um, the way the question is phrased tells me that they may be good candidates for doing this. I mean, she seems to have a lot of awareness. You know, in, in the old days of adoption, the reason there was a rule that uh, a family had to be completely finished with infertility treatment before completing a home study was because there wasn't a lot of adoption education and families adopted as what we now call like a placeholder child. Like, you know, we really want to be parents, we want to get on with this, but we're going to keep trying. We'll keep trying because what we really want is that genetic offspring. And children felt it. They really felt that there was not the readiness, there was just sort of an urgency. And adoptees who are now 40, 50, 60 years old and older tell us that they really felt that, which is why sometimes the spontaneous birth of a child into a family in that situation did cause issues. It did create issues. Mm -hmm. We know a lot more now. And so I think it really requires the listeners, the askers of the question, the infertility patients to to explore for themselves what is our motivation and you know and how is this going to affect the child that we have, not children in general. And you know, by the age of three or four you don't really know, but you you kinda know if you've got like an easygoing kid or an easy temperament, it's it's very difficult. Um, I will also say that ultimately what's really good for parents who make decisions with a lot of forethought and consideration and counsel is usually good for children. Um, and if they don't try this and they really need to try this, then they may end up resenting their child, the child they have, um, because they made the decision on her behalf. So that's a complication as well. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot, um, as I've been thinking as you were speaking, I, I, I think that maybe one of the reasons that we hear this um, is that uh, it's a, that the support group is a safe place to say this. It's not, you know, you yeah. don't necessarily know these uh, people in your everyday life. Exactly. You know, it's a closed group, that type of thing. Because I, I think there's a great deal of, not shame, that's too strong, but I think there's a great deal of concern about how this desire is going to be perceived in the adoption world, uh, the professional world, and really with other adoptive parents, I think, to a certain extent, but also in particular in the professional world. You know, was was this child, as as you say, the, a place? Is this child, our first child, simply a placeholder for the real child we really want? Um, so I, I'm wondering if that's why it, that that people are not don't feel comfortable um, going to a but going to a a counselor with their their counselors may be associated with their agencies, and they may not feel comfortable 
with that so that, you know, getting help may be a little more problematic. Yeah, I think that's true. I I, yeah. I think it is a hard thing to admit that, you know, it's one of the paradoxes of adoption is that despite our love and devotion and attachment and unbelievable ecstasy uh, with the family that we've created and with our our children through adoption that we still have this desire and and and, know, and almost a shame associated that we still have the desire yes exactly we aren't and, and we feel so guilty um, guilt that's probably it, the it word, feels right? disloyal it feels disloyal to our children mm-hmm. um and there you know there may be some truth to that which is why we perceive that our children will feel that yeah, uh, and yet uh, yeah, it's real. That's true. So, you know, to the extent that they feel like, you know, this may not be in the best interest of our child, uh, the uh, but you raise the issue that 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 that, that could result in uh, a feeling of resentment towards that child. Uh, I don't sense it in this question at all um, that she would, because I think she is. It, it sounds to me that she is open to at least exploring the option. Mm-hmm. That it might not be in the best interest of the child, of her daughter. I think it was a daughter. Right. Yeah. So, if parents decide to combine children by birth and adoption, does the fact that that people went back into treatment after adoption, in other words, they they have their biological child secondary, second to their uh, uh, adopted child, does that add a different wrinkle on how to handle it? How to handle what? How to handle explaining this? to their child. Good question. How to handle explaining it to their child. I mean, it's one thing if they have, if they are a fertile couple and chose to adopt. We see that a fair amount too, um, uh, particularly in the world of international adoption now. Um, so you're combining children by birth and adoption, but in this case, that case, you would be having your birth children first, and right. then you're, you would adopt second to that. Um, but in this case, you would be happy, you would be going back into treatment after having adopted, and does that change how you can ex- how you handle it with your child? How do you explain that to your child? You know, uh, that's why I I like to talk about our family building stories and each child's um, family joining story, because it's really a story of how we all came together, and it is so 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 common now to um, have children in a family with different birth stories, not just um, multiple adopted children with different birth families. Uh, But, you know, I do see, I see a lot of secondary infertility of um, couples who had a birth child and then have a child through egg donation because of the age of mom primarily. Mm -hmm. And so I see a lot of that. Um, and so we're really just talk, we're talking about um, children in the in the same family with different birth stories, and different stories about how we came together. Um, I, you know, I yeah, it changes the story. I, I will um, briefly say that in my own family, I became a parent. My kids are now 25 and 26. Uh, it was the uh, middle of the 80s, and I was diagnosed with premature ovarian failure. I was essentially in menopause. There was no such thing as egg donation. 
we became educated about adoption and decided that was that was really our only path at that time. Um, started moving into adoption, and while we were waiting for that, the first uh, child in the world was born through egg donation, and I was a very good candidate for the possibility of that because of the nature of my infertility. And uh, long story short, my um, son was born and uh, through adoption, and um, four weeks later, I became one of the first people in the world to receive an anonymous donor's egg. And my children are ten months apart. Now, <laughs> oh while I was um, pregnant with a, a child that was a month younger than the child I was carrying in my arms. So I was, you know, uh, just newly pregnant when my kid was a month old. Mm -hmm. People had all kinds of very funny, interesting comments like, oh, you've been busy and, wow, are you pregnant again? And, you know, and there it is. You know, you talk about the differences between adoption and um, and giving birth, you know, there it is. It's, you know, what do you say? People think you had sex right after you delivered. Um <laughs> So in our family, our children obviously had different birth stories. Neither one of them were genetically related to me, so my reproductive loss or genetic loss was already determined. But obviously my youngest son gave me the opportunity to be pregnant, for which I'm very grateful. I feel very blessed. It was a great experience. And he's genetically related to his dad, which was not crucial at all. I mean, it was not really the reason we did it at that time was because we wanted two children in our family, and it seemed like an opportunity for me to be pregnant, uh, and we didn't know how long it would take to adopt again, and this opportunity came up, and we never thought it would work. Now, in, so I can tell you how my two children experienced having different birth stories, but that's just my kids. And I've been right. doing this for a living as long as I have had them. So they have grown up in a household where the language of family building is is second nature. It is their second language. Talking mm -hmm. about egg donation is as intuitive to my children as, you know, somebody else talking about sports. Um and so at different times, they may have talked about it in different ways, but I can tell you that when they were children, they both felt kind of lucky that they had um, two families. They kind of talked about two families or two mothers, which, you know, the first time I heard it, I went, oh, really? You know, then I worked through that, and we talked about that. Um, they felt lucky to be in the family that they were in, um, uh, they would hold it over each other's head because one was an open adoption, one was an anonymous donation. So my oldest son always felt like, you know, he totally, he had this really big birth family and he had all these brothers and sisters and he had another mother and that was a competition between them. So he felt like, you know, he won the jackpot on that one. And the only thing his brother had was us right? Mm -hmm. Now, who could have predicted that? You could never predict that. Um, you might have thought that it would be the other way around and he would have felt ripped off, but he didn't. So, yeah. and, that, 
and that changed over time as um, actually the egg donation piece became open and we established a relationship with her. And uh, so, you know, things change over time. They don't stay babies forever. And, the and we can't really, and it's so hard to know in advance. Are there tips that you can give people for how to um, do as much as you can to make it a a smooth transition? And let me, let me uh, at this point say that uh, creating a family, we have a section, uh, we have a lot of resources. I, I, I suspect ours are probably the most resources uh, available online for uh, families, uh, uh, blended families, families combining children by birth and adoption, regardless of how those that combination uh, occurs. And you can find that on our site, creatingafamily.org, slash, or just go to the blue horizontal menu, hover over the word adoption, click on resources, then go to blended families and all of our resources. And we have uh, quite a few uh, you can get there. So your children, uh, obviously, uh, the, the, uh, the, they're different birth stories in the fact that one came through a pregnancy and one came through adoption. Uh, it seems to have been a relatively smooth thing for your family. And one of the things that you did was you made it an open topic to, co- to talk about. I suspect that is one of the tips uh, to uh, to make it a conversation that kids feel very comfortable with. Any other things, either that you did or you see other families do, that could help children when they come into a family with different uh, different birth stories, different family joining stories, where one might feel that uh, that one has a biological and one does not. Well, one thing is that there are a lot of children's books available now that describe families that came together in different ways, and I recommend that you fill your bookshelves with every single one of them, even the ones that aren't very good, and you start <laughs> reading them when kids are really young because the the pictures and the tone in which you read the books to the kids is what they're going to remember, and then you can make up your own story as you're reading, as you're looking at the book. Um, and so those are very helpful, and you can really almost Google, you know, uh, children's books about egg donation, children's books about adoption, children's books about family creation. And uh, we actually on creating a family. And you we have, have a, a big huge. bibliography, sure. And, we do, and um, I'm, I'm, I love children's literature, and I love that suggestion. Yes. Uh, and that helps a lot because it, 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 that's really what we're doing is we're just telling the story of our family. And the books help us to do that in a really child-friendly way. That's one. Two is, you know, connect with community. In the egg donation world, I strongly recommend that anybody considering egg donation or is a family through egg donation connect with parents via egg donation. It's PVED. Dot org, pved.org. They can you find it. We link all over our egg donation page to them. It's pved.org. Yeah, parentsviaeggdonation.org, and you will find a community of people who are trying and people who have kids that are 15 years old who were conceived through egg donation, and it's, a, it's just a huge support community. Um, and the other, you know, that is very helpful is, to really practice talking about it yourself and with your partner so that you get very comfortable with the story yourself. 
And in that way, it becomes very casual. It becomes dinner table conversation. It's not the conversation that you have that's really heavy where you sit down and you discuss these things. It is a conversation about difference. And so the the last tip really is for that that we need to believe that different is not bad, it's just different. And so, you know, unfortunately a lot of times parents go into this with a predisposition that they're going to feel really bad for the child who was adopted um, because their sibling got to be born to the family or, you know, that I think we can present that we just came into this family differently. You know, mom and dad chose each other. They're not related to each other. Um, and, and families, people can be different from each other, and that's okay. Uh, and I think that takes some work. And I think it takes retraining our brain to really believe that because especially in families, it is a desirable quality to say a kid is a chip off the old block or they, you know, they're really talented in baseball because dad's got quite the arm. And so how do we communicate in our families that it's not okay, it's not only okay to be different, but to have come together in different ways? Mm-hmm. Honoring differences in general uh, across the board uh, is is one way of of doing that, and one way of retraining and, and retraining ourselves and training our children. I think we have time for one more question, and I want to get this one in because we do see that there's a lot of interest, in, and and this is an area of growing interest uh, in embryo donation. And we see that both in our online community and in our audience. We received this question from Mary Anna or Mary Anna. We have two children by conventional adoption. We are seriously considering embryo adoption for our third child. I would appreciate you and your guests' opinion on how these different types of adoption should be handled in our family and any ideas on potential issues with our two children that we may need to address. P.S. I know that you use the term embryo donation, so feel free to substitute it in my question. Uh, <laughs> no, I actually uh, 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 I think that I, I wanted to in- intentionally use the, the phrasing you did, Mariana, because I think that it's uh, that that it lends itself to yours. You're right. I do tend to use the term donation, but knock yourself out. We're going to call it. Uh, I read your question as is. Okay. So, uh, Carol, any thoughts on how um, em- creating a family through a donor embryo? Um, if you're if you've got children who have been uh, adopted, how how that might play out. Yes. Well, first of all, I do use the word donation because you cannot adopt a person before it's born. So I And I think it's a very important distinction. I don't think it's insignificant at all. I think when we are given an embryo by someone else, it's a donation, and we are not adopting that person because legally one cannot do that, and morally we can't adopt a person before it's born. Um, the The... So the difference is going to be that the parents carry and deliver and gestate their third child. Um, that, so that's a difference, uh, but that's just a difference that, you know, probably their first two children were born to different birth mothers, so they were each carried in different uteruses, and now mom is going to carry the third child in her uterus. So it can be sort of presented that way. Um, But the primary difference is that unless they're talking about a directed donation where someone they know 
is giving them embryos that that other couple has created, the primary difference is going to be in the type of adoption their first two children had. If it's a domestic adoption, it's an open adoption, and the birth families are known to the adoptive family. If it's an international adoption, it's an international adoption, and that has its own story. But the one concern about embryo donation is that very often it is so anonymous that we have very little to tell our children. And this is a problem, uh, and it's becoming a growing problem in, in our reproductive community. So I would say that one of the considerations is what information do you have about a child you may carry uh, that is different or, you know, quantitatively different than the children that you're already parenting. And it is sometimes challenging for children, even children who are adopted into a family in a more traditional adoption. In the old days, if you had a very close adoption and birth parents were not even known at all, and then you had an open adoption, you know, it is sometimes challenging for the child who doesn't know anything about their birth family to see their sibling having a great deal of knowledge. Um, plus, we just know that growing individuals need a genetic identity, and they need to know who they are in all aspects of that. So that's one of the primary considerations in embryo donation. In terms of the difference, I think it's just, you know, you grew in her, you grew in her, and you grew in me. Uh, I will say that, that it is possible um, to do a uh, known donor um it is you're right depending on whether you use an agency or a clinic and and, and it's not as not always as easy but it is possible to do it but you're right it's not the it's not the usual thank you so much carol Lieber wilkins for being our guest today on creating a family if you want to participate in the discussion on the topics of this show check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog to get more information about Carol, and I know everybody is going to want to, you can go to her website, which is LA Family Building, as in Los Angeles Family Building.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank one more gold sponsor. It is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources at Creating a Family, the Independent Adoption Center, whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in 49 states and are fully licensed in California, Indiana, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Connecticut, and New York. The UN estimates that there are millions of orphans in the world, including 104,000 uh yeah, 104,000, thank you, uh, currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. These kids, as well as the millions of older children throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information on U.S. children waiting for a family, you can go to the adoption resource page of creatingafamily.org, where we include links to various photo listings of some of these kids on our waiting child page. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. 
which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations.